We are on Disciplines of a Godly Man, chapter 17, on witness, then chapter 18, on ministry, then we'll switch over to our doctrine on Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, picking up with chapter 20, and going ahead from there. So chapter 17 of our Disciplines of a Godly Man book is about witness, witness, and I'm starting with Matthew 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus tells us there that we are uh, letting our light shine, that we are to shine before others. And the purpose of that is that people will see our good works and give glory to to our Father who is in heaven. This arises out of the truth that we are salt and we are light specifically the light aspect, that not just pastors and missionaries, but all Christians shed light, all Christians provide um, salt. So the problem that he addresses in this chapter is that Christians think that light shining or witnessing for, um, for Christ to unbelievers is a task just for pastors or missionaries, and it's not, it's for all believers. Of course, there is an office of evangelist, and yet all Christians can open the Bible and tell people about God and to testify. So witnessing or testifying is normal for all Christians, not just pastors. So Pastor Hughes in our, our chapter wrote this, the greatest joys in pastoral ministry are in the normal average, the avenues of everyday person-to-person witness things any Christian can do regardless of gifts or calling. So that's his perspective, is that some of the most fruitful, some of the most uh, enjoyable aspects of ministry are things that every Christian can do, not simply a pastor. So he gives some examples from his own personal life as a Christian, as an individual person, not in his role of pastor. So examples such as he was a, a boat captain in the 1970s and a, and a a fellow boat captain, he called him Big Jim, uh, was a man that he testified to when he came to Christ. His daughter uh, had a kindergarten class, and her kindergarten teacher was interacting with them as parents, and he testified to her. She was converted. Her name was Susie. He talked about his neighbor named John, his uh, mail carrier named Damon, and then Damon's wife, uh, Bobby. So he just gives examples of his own testimony and the fruits of that. Um, Then he goes on to talk about how it's true not just for him, but for other Christians. He talked about his neighbors, um, Jamie and Debbie, who were witnessing and growing in their their witnessing. So I'll leave you to the chapter to read those stories. Then he turns to the Bible for biblical examples, and um, he's zeroed in on the disciple of Jesus named Andrew as a witness, the aspect of Andrew's life as a witness. So when Andrew met Jesus, he was a follower of John the Baptist. Okay, so he's, he's got a rabbi, and in those days you were supposed to be loyal to your rabbi. You don't just go switching around. I think I'll jump to a different school. I think I'll jump to a different professor. No, that's modern thinking. Ancient thinking was you're very loyal to that rabbi, and you stick with him. So in John 1, verse 35, we read this. John was standing with two of John's disciples. One of those is Andrew. John was standing with two of John's disciples, and John looked at Jesus as Jesus walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Listen. The two disciples heard John say this, and they followed Jesus. Then in verse 40, 
John 1.40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. So we have that spelled out for us in Scripture. So what our author is telling us to focus in on there is that Andrew switched rabbis. Andrew was a follower of John the Baptist, and when he met Jesus, he changed. He was a, a student. He was an average Christian following uh, Rabbi John the Baptist, and he changed to follow Jesus. Then uh, we could also conclude that Andrew had been baptized in repentance for sin, baptized by John the Baptist the way that John the Baptist would, would baptize. People would come out to him in the wilderness, and, and he would baptize if they were to repent of their sins. So Andrew was among the, the crowd of people following John the Baptist, quite a crowd, and they were all awaiting the Messiah. That's how we find Andrew at the beginning. And then as, the life, as um, we also get information about Andrew, we learn that he was the brother of Simon Peter, if you look at John 1, verse 40. He's the brother of Simon Peter. So what we're supposed to conclude as we follow now for a moment Andrew's life is that he was the soonest and he was the earliest out of the 12 disciples to follow Jesus. He, he was the first to follow Jesus. Yet he never achieved top status among the disciples. You always hear about Peter. You don't hear much about Andrew. Andrew wrote no books of the Bible. We don't have a gospel according to Andrew. We don't have first second Andrew. Uh, epistle of Andrew. Um, Andrew must have performed some miracles along with the other uh, disciples, but none are recorded in the Bible as a special example or a teaching point as they are from other disciples. Andrew was not bold, we think, like his brother Peter was, or at least it's not recorded for us. He seems like a non-leader, a regular guy, a regular believer, a regular disciple. So why is Andrew famous today? Now pause and give you a little proof of of, that he is famous today. He's the patron saint of three nations. Can anybody guess those? Scotland, good. Greece is the second one, and sorry, but Russia. It's, it still means he's famous. So um, only for one reason, because he excelled in bringing others to Christ. In the 8th century, a monk named Regulus brought the relics of Andrew to what is today St. Andrew's in Scotland, Supposedly, the Scots were led into battle by a white X-shaped cross across the blue sky. And today, this is what the flag of Scotland looks like. So it started in the 8th century when they were bringing Andrew's remains uh, to St. Andrew's. So influence is my only point there. Why? What special um, abilities did Andrew have? None. An average guy. Um, big-hearted, though, a man of average abilities who loved to introduce others to Christ. How do we account for his influence? He had a heart for the lost. His heart is what made him witness to others. So John 1, verses 35 to 40, we read that just now. He knew Christ. Then John 1, verse 41, he was drawn to Christ. And then we learn that he was selfless. How do we know that? Well, he's known as Simon Peter's brother, but... Peter's not known as Andrew's brother. (laughs) You know how that works? Andrew is the one who knew Christ first, and Andrew's the one who introduced Peter to Jesus. 
And on that occasion, a lesser person would have stumbled. Listen to how that went down. John 1, verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. There he is identified that way. Going on, he first found his own brother Simon. This is Andrew finding his brother Simon, who is at this point not a follower of Jesus. Okay, I want you to track with this. He found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ, of course. Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. Jesus looked at Peter and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And a lesser person would have said, What am I, peanut butter? You're taking my brother instantly and putting him in that position? I've been following you already. I'm the one who brought him in. (laughs) Is there no junior position for me? But Andrew, we are not told, had any of that sort of response. He had a heart for God. He was glad to have Jesus have followers. Um, The point is that some people can only join if they can lead and have power, position, prestige, and influence. Andrew was willing to join if he can serve. Uh, Andrew had a very good attitude. For example, he was an optimist in John 6, verses 5 through 9 about Jesus. We read this. Listen carefully for Andrew. John 6, 5. Lifting up his eyes, this is Jesus, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Jesus said this to test Philip, for Jesus himself knew what Jesus would do. Philip answered Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of Jesus' disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, (laughs) said to Jesus, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? John 6, 5 to 9. So Andrew's the one who passed the test that Jesus gave to Philip, and Philip failed. And Andrew's the one who suggested the boy's five loaves and two fish, which is the most famous miracle, aside from Jesus' own resurrection, the feeding of the 5,000 that happens, which is the only miracle aside from the resurrection that's recorded in all four of, of the Gospels. So Andrew seems to have had high hopes on this occasion for what problems were brought to Christ that Christ would solve. This is all we have to work with. Five loaves, uh, two fish. So it, it seems to show a great attitude in Andrew and bringing uh, people to Christ, bringing um, problems to Christ that people have of needing food, needing salvation. He had a welcoming heart. His heart was expansive. He's the first disciple to understand Jesus is the answer for everyone. So the point that our author makes in, in drawing out the story of Andrew is that if you have no special skills in speaking, no special Bible training, no trips to the Holy Land, uh, no long resume of Christian involvement, God is big. So if your heart is in um, serving other people, God is the one who's placed you where you are in your family, your neighborhood, your circles, your workplace, for a reason. He's put people into your life already that he wants you to influence for Christ, testify to them. So we have four biological networks, four networks he talks about, biological, your relatives and family, geographical, where you live, where you uh, go to church, your circles, um, vocational, coworkers, customers, clients, supervisors, contractors, and vendors, and recreational, people you see even when you exercise, relax, play, or go to a game. So investing in relationships, he encourages getting involved, spending time with people, inviting people out for lunch or to your home for coffee, 
doing things together, such as games, fishing, cooking classes, parties for home products, using special days such as birthdays, graduations, holidays, weddings, and births to invite others into your circle, writing a note, calling people, joining clubs in your village, town, or city, book clubs, car clubs, walking, hiking, climbing clubs, gardening, woodworking, baking, sewing, sketching, painting, bowing and arrows, bow and arrow, uh, gun clubs, hunting or fishing, and so on. Volunteering to coach boys or girls teams, being teacher's aides, helping at the hospital or food pantry, opening your home to your neighbors, to children and to adults. Um, my home, our neighbor children come over to use the basketball hoop, and they need um, air in the basketball. Uh, they need spray on the mechanicals for the pole to go up or down. Uh, they make a mess. Uh, they ask for a new net. In the summer, they drink uh, water out of our garden hose. Uh, these are ma- ways that we remain open and hospitable to the children. Uh, who knows what God might do? Uh, again, Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before others. They may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's a review of chapter 17. We move on to chapter 18, Disciplines of a Godly Man, chapter on ministry. 2 Corinthians 12.15, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. 2 Corinthians 12.15. The problem he presents in this chapter is that Christians don't approach church work with diligence. The solution is to develop a ministering heart that drives us to work for Christ in his church and his kingdom. So he describes a small heart versus a big heart or a ministering heart. Small heart, big heart. A small heart avoids relationships. A big heart opens itself to others. A small heart dodges troubles. A big heart is an index of sorrows, understands what people are going through. A small heart does not embrace ideals, but a ministering heart has noble ideals and principles that it attaches itself to. A small heart is deaf to discord among people, and a big heart hears the pain of others. A small heart is blind to ugliness, and a ministering heart sees the hurts clearly. A small heart doesn't contribute. A big heart gives itself away. So he makes those contrasts in the chapter. And what's the path of a ministering heart? More ministry means uh, opening yourself to more pain. Uh, his example is uh, if you play baseball, you may very well strike out. Uh, striking out is painful. So if you're going to get in the game, you have to open yourself to more pain. So more ministry means more pain. It's just an illustration. He also illustrates the opposite. More ministry means potential for more joy. Back to baseball. Who knows? Uh, you may hit a homer in the ninth inning. Bases loaded. Grand slam. How do you describe such a thrill and a memory? So the idea of getting in the game, a path of more pain but more joy. In John 4, uh, verses 1 through 45, we, we see the ministry of Jesus to the woman at the well. A familiar story uh, to us, and he just highlights some lessons from that here. For example, in verse 6, we read this. Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Did you ever realize as you studied that, that Jesus was very tired in this instance? We are literally told that. Why do we need that information? <laughs> To understand that Jesus was tired. The, uh, the disciples were tired. They also journeyed, right? Um, the church of Jesus Christ is conducted by tired people. 
Uh, these men were willing to put themselves out whenever uh, necessary in order to accomplish noteworthy tasks. So it's, if it's true about Jesus, true about his disciples, it's true about his church. The whole world is evangelized by tired missionaries, um, pastors, home foreign missionaries, uh, servants, committee people. Uh, they're making a difference because of the fleeting opportunity before Christ returns. In any solid church, there are people there who are willing to put out whatever effort, time, and energy is necessary for the situation as it demands. So a ministry heart is a willing heart to extend itself for the sake of Christ and his gospel, even when a person is really tired out. So we have an equation. A big heart, or or a ministering heart, is a laboring heart. A ministering heart is a working heart. Those with ministry hearts are the hard workers. So in the uh, Reformation, we have an example. In the, in the 1500s, you remember uh, the Reverend uh, Dr. Martin Luther, uh, one of the primary, probably is the primary uh, leader um, name recognized in the Reformation. We're told that he would fall into bed. Fall into bed. He'd probably be asleep on his, in the midst of his fall. And that <clears throat> he'd wake up so eager to get to work, he would just go and do Uh, reforming stuff, I'm sorry, this is a little gross, he would not take time to change the sheets, sometimes for a duration of as much as a whole year. (laughs) I'm not recommending that, but it's an illustration that is memorable that uh, hard workers, um, you would argue, yeah, maybe he should work hard at changing the sheets, but um, get the point, it's a little humorous. Also, uh, Pastor D.L. Moody his bedtime prayer one time, he was so tired, had to pray before he went to bed, so he said, Lord, I'm tired, amen, <laughs> went to sleep. Even though weary, uh, ministering hearts expend themselves. And so in John 4, as Jesus was a Jew ministering to a woman at the well, a Samaritan, uh, we see that we pass over relational barriers. Uh, racial barriers can be daunting, but in the early church, just like in the life of Jesus, if a Jew can conquer the barrier between Jew and Gentile, then we could conquer any other racial barrier. So a ministry heart reaches out to those around us, regardless of such barriers, and we see life as an unfolding eternal drama in which God works his purposes. So he may very well have placed people near you that he wants you to contact. Uh, Psalm thirty-seven twenty-three: the steps of a man are established by the Lord. So some people like to call this divine appointments, um, that we run into somebody or you see somebody you haven't seen for a long time or somebody moves in next to you, um, a coworker, a contractor. Um, divine appointments with the people God has sent to pass by us. Paul's our example of a big heart, a ministering heart, uh, when he showed a willingness to face hardships. Um, I'll quote two passages and then we'll move on. First Thessalonians 2, 9 You remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.9. So Paul's working night and day. And the last one, 2 Corinthians 11.27. Paul summarized his experiences as as an apostle. You can imagine somebody interviewing him. So, Paul, what's it like to be an apostle? And he would say something like this. Uh, In toil and hardship, uh, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and so on. You get the idea. Willing to put out whatever um, the mission requires. All right, that was uh, Disciplines of a Godly Man book. We will end next week with chapter 19, the last chapter. So let's go over to Westminster Confession of Faith 
And now you'll find a, a page on this in your green booklet. We're on chapter 20, and across the top of the page it says, Our Glorious Freedom. It's a chapter about liberty. It's helpful, appropriate, and wise for this chapter to follow the chapter on law. Uh, we, we, uh, we covered that last time, chapter, chapter 19. Um, we, ha- we have to understand the balance between two uh, apparent opposites. The law or obligation to keep God's commands, which we covered last time, and then our, our liberty. So you see how the logic flows from chapter 19 to chapter 20. Um, the, the two subjects are balanced in Scripture. So you have to uh, pause and ask yourself, on the, on the topic of, of Christian liberty, on the topic of Christian liberty, what do you think of when you think of freedom or Christian liberty? Um, Christian liberty is the topic here. And too often, I think, um, modern individualistic Americans, when we approach Christianity, tend to think, my Christian liberty means I get to do whatever I want. Doesn't that sound like liberty? Um, even the little child says, me do. Right? We, we embody that even as, as adults, unless we've consciously matured past that. It's not true that we get to do whatever we want. We just established that in chapter 19 in the law. So what does liberty mean or look like? Um, And especially we would caution against Christian liberty that says, I have the freedom to mistreat other people. Oh, no, you don't, right? There, There are four truths about Christian liberty that maybe set parameters for us or help to prevent us from going too far. So um, number one, Christian liberty must never be flaunted. Uh, flaunted on. I get to do whatever I want as if you're thumbing your nose at somebody. Um, it cannot be that. that. That's not what it equals. Like Romans 14, 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Um, you know, th- think of the classic example of alcohol. Can you drink alcohol or not? And Christians would debate about this. If you feel that you have the freedom to drink alcohol, why do you have to spout that to other people who don't feel that way? And that's where Paul is addressing this, I think, wisely. Romans 14, 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. It's not to be flaunted. If you're flaunting it, you're not thinking about it correctly. Secondly, these four truths about Christian liberty. Secondly, Christian liberty does not mean we only welcome fellow Christians after we've sorted out their views on various subjects. If you're as correct on your doctrine as I think you should be, then you're one of us. But if you're not, if you're mistaken on some things or off on certain things, then I'm not sure I can befriend you. That's not, we don't have Christian liberty there. That we, we welcome believers. If, they, if they've brought, been brought from death to life, they belong to Jesus. All of heaven has welcomed them. We welcome them. Romans 14.1. As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. And then verse 3, Romans 14, 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So a second, a second uh, aspect of you know, parameters around Christian liberty, it doesn't mean we welcome people only after we've examined them. And number three, Christian liberty should never be the stumbling block to another Christian. 
Again, if somebody else is, is troubled or even worse, heading into sin because of how we're conducting our Christian liberty, we're not doing it correctly. We're doing something wrong. It should never be the stumbling block to another Christian. Romans 14, 13. Decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Romans 14, 13. Of course, you, you know that that means brother or sister. We, the brethren, it, it would never um, mean just males and not females there. Christian liberty should never be the stumbling block to another. And our fourth principle, uh, Christian liberty requires us to understand the principle that produces a biblical balance. In other words, the, the balance between chapter 19 and 20, the balance between law and freedom. It is not demanding the rights that I have, uh, pursuing and marking out for myself the, the rights that I have. Um, for example, I, I think we borrow from our American history. Like the founding of America included the right to pursue life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And we, we tend to bring those sorts of thought processes into our Christianity, into the church. However, Christians know we don't have the right to, we, we don't possess any rights at all because in our sinful nature we've forfeited all of our rights. So we go back to the gospel, go back to us being worms before God and that Christ has saved us. So sensitivity to others back and forth across the church of Jesus Christ, especially to weaker brothers and sisters, requires us to retain that sense of our own unworthiness, that status of humility, that um, constant reminder to oneself that I don't deserve anything really helps to avoid that sharp edge um, that ends up offending and, and distancing people from one another. On the other hand, to balance this, this is, this is nuance, right? This is a paradox. This is uh, where the sensitivity comes. On the other hand, we don't need to become slaves to another person's conscience. To another person's conscience. Where, where the gospel is at stake, liberty needs to be exercised and where the stability of weak Christians at, at stake, we need to restrain. So Martin Luther wrote in, uh, a, a compound sentence here that seeks to balance the two, law versus liberty, from Martin Luther. Quote, A Christian man is the most free lord of all and subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. We've got to be able to say both sides of that sentence. I'll say it once more. A Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. So if we can, um, if we can hold those two in balance, I think we're starting to understand um, liberty. So you'll see on your handout there a freedom from, freedom for, um, freedom common or the same in both Old Testament and New Testament believers. Um, liberty is attributed to the Spirit. I fill in the blank. That's my only fill in the blank in your book. Um, the Holy Spirit there. And then individual consciences, um, section two, and attacking on license. License means that you know, I, have, I have this liberty. I have Christian liberty. And what happens when that comes under attack? It's important for us to, to defend it. You know, thinking verses like Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. So that can't be the way that we interpret the law. Um, so, 
there is a pronounced advance from the Old Testament to the New Testament status. Um, from the uh, ceremonial law, uh, greater boldness and access to God and the throne of grace and greater experience of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And here's your verse that fills in your blank, 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. So, to whom is liberty attributed? The Spirit of God. I do notice if, you, if you're looking at the actual confession in section 2, where it says, God alone is Lord of the conscience. That's one of the beautiful, most often quoted statements out of the Westminster Confession, that we don't bind each other's conscience, that God alone is, is Lord of the conscience. Uh, like, for example, in Acts 5, when uh, the t- disciples are saying we must obey God rather than men, even if the government authorities tell us to stop testifying and stop spreading the gospel, we must obey God rather than men. That's kind of a conflict, right? We're supposed to obey the authorities, and yet not when they tell us not to preach the gospel. So it's one of the most admired statements in the Westminster Confession, that God alone is uh, Lord of the conscience, and the paragraph that surrounds it. Because it was made at a time in the 1640s, you know, this was written in the 1640s, so the debates at that time, it was amazing that our authors were able to put that sentence together because there was great discussion about the whole matter of Christian liberty. Listen to this. In the 1640s, that 10-year window, there were more books published on the topic of Christian liberty than on anything else. That's how much this was at debate. People were really trying to figure this out. How does the law relate to freedom? How does a Christian in the New Testament relate to God's law in Scripture? Um, And I think the reason why it it was such a debate to be worked through, and I think we have the great answer here, is that you, you have to ask yourself about your conscience. Will your conscience always tell you the right thing to do? And the Bible tells us no, that even Christian consciences do not always accurately direct us. Our consciences may condemn us for doing things that are perfectly okay and appropriate for us to do, and our consciences may also set us free to do things that are contrary to God's word. So it requires continual study and submitting ourselves and even our consciences to God's word. So we have to develop a certain, hear me on this, a certain mistrust of our consciences if we are to enjoy true uh, Christian freedom. That it's not like, well, if my conscience is clear, it's green light all, the, all day long. Like, well, your conscience may be wrong on this. Look at this verse, right? So checking ourselves per scripture. Eventually... We trust when our consciences are informed by the word rather than informed by the world or simply traditions of the church. We can trust our consciences some, but it's never as much as we trust scripture. So that's why in section three, you'll see this phrase, pretense of Christian liberty. They who, upon pretense of Christian liberty, do practice any sin and so on. Pretense of Christian liberty is saying, I'm free to do this. My conscience is clear. Get off my back. Um, that's not Christian liberty. That's pretense of Christian liberty. It's fake Christian liberty. You have to go back and figure it out again. So, all right. Enough on that. Let's move on. The timer keeps telling me. Chapter 21, moving into an area of 
applying the gospel. You know, we, we've spent all these middle chapters uh, from 10 to uh, 18 about fleshing out the gospel, and now it's being applied to topics. First the law, and then Christian liberty, and now um, to, to worship. So I want to start with John 4, 23 and 24. It's across the top of your page there, uh, chapter 21. The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. And then also about worship in Hebrews 12, 28, quoted on the top of your page. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So in section 1, they spell out the grounds for worship or the reasons why uh, we should should worship and how we know that we're doing the right thing as we approach the living God in worship. We have both general and special revelation. General revelation we get from living in this world, what the creation tells us, that why do we not have worship services at 2.15 in the morning? Because it's dark out and you're tired and asleep and it just goes against what wisdom in the real world looks like. That's general revelation wisdom. And special revelation is the Bible. Uh, what does the Bible tell us about how worship is, is to be uh, conducted? So section one is um, spelling that out. Um, basically what the um, several sections of chapter 21 are getting at, some have summarized by calling the regulative principle for worship. If you've heard of that, if you want to study up on that, this is the place in the Westminster Confession that addresses that. The regulative principle of worship basically means that in worship we do what is commanded and only what is commanded. That we must not do what is not commanded. Which is why we don't have skits. Which is why we don't have videos. uh, Things like that. We don't see those commanded in scripture. So the regulative principle of worship expects us to do what is commanded. Prayer, preaching, reading, giving, fellowship. But not do what's not commanded, you name it, any other new ideas that, that people come up with. So this chapter um, spells out some of those aspects. Why uh, we worship the person that we worship, of course, the object of our worship, section two, the elements of worship, um, prayer, um, the word of God, sacraments, even um, if you notice in section two, worship to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and not to angels. <clears throat> I remember one time, this is not to convict you or indict you, but I, it's, it's fine, we continue to learn as we go, but I remember talking to someone who had been in church uh, worship services for decades, and they said, can we, can we, can we pray to the Holy Spirit? And, uh, you know, it, it's a doctrine of Trinity, which we covered in chapter 2, combined with a, a doctrine of worship, which we cover in chapter 21. But the scriptures explain this to us. If you listen carefully at the end of my pastoral prayer, I always try to keep this in front of us, that we pray ordinarily to God the Father, through God the Son, by God the Holy Spirit, our one God now and forever. So that, yes, we pray to the Holy Spirit, but not ordinarily. Ordinarily, as the Lord's Prayer starts, our Father who art in heaven, ordinarily we pray to the Father. How do we have access to the Father? by the Son, and who helps us with this whole process of prayer to the Almighty? It is uh, the Spirit. So 
We pray through the Spirit, but yes, you can pray to the Holy Spirit. Uh, yes, you can pray to Jesus. Uh, yes, you can pray to the Father. Um, it's three persons and one God. So things like that as we think it through, but not to angels. We don't pray to angels. Is not our culture confused about that? Is, is not the Catholic Church, I think, sometimes confused about that or other, other churches? We're not free to pray to angels. We're not pr- free to worship angels. So things like that. It just it works down through things that might be obvious to you. Um, week by week, we just don't, don't do that, so it would seem out of the ordinary. But we have to say what we would do, say what we wouldn't do, and defend it from Scripture. So this is one of the places that, that um, we do that. Uh, also, um, sections 6, 7, and 8, uh, where we worship, uh, we don't have to face Jerusalem, uh, things like that, that uh, no, no place on earth is now holy ground, that uh, we are the temple, that Christ is in heaven, uh, that we worship him from anywhere. <laughs> Again, back to, to Luther, they used to sweep out bars after the Saturday night, whatever they do on Saturday night. And they would sweep out the bars and have worship in there. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's, we can worship God from a bar, a tavern. Um, so the location of worship is not um, the issue. Uh, the time of worship follows, like I was saying earlier, aspects of, of wisdom, not in the middle of the night, but in the day when people can come. And then um, the time of worship with regard to Sunday. Is it Saturday or is it Sunday? And um, how many days uh, per week? And sometimes people grieve that we no longer have Wednesday night services in churches in America and as an indication of decline. Fair enough, but it was never set apart in Scripture as a whole another day. So it's okay if we have worship services on Wednesday evenings, and it's going to be okay if we don't. The real concern is if we don't have worship on Sunday. And... Um, we do have Bible studies and prayer meetings and things like that, but the, the point more is that our view of Sunday is over against the Seventh-day Adventists. Why not the Seventh-day? If you look at the Ten Commandments and, and the Fourth Commandment, should we not meet on the Sabbath, which is literally the Seventh? Should we not meet on Saturday? So they make the case uh, for that, that one whole day is kept holy in each seven-day week, and it's the first day of the week now because of the resurrection of Christ on the first day. All right, we move to section 22, chapter 22 on oaths and vows. It's um, maybe strange to you if, if you never encountered the Westminster Confession of Faith and before you read the table of contents, you were asked to guess what you think the topic would be of the 33 chapters. How many people would guess that there's a chapter on oaths and vows? It just seems like, What? If you read websites of churches and they say, this is our mission statement, how many of them say, by the way, we're people who keep our word? I have never seen that in a mission statement of a church. But our mission statement is written in the 1600s, and it has an entire chapter on oaths and vows. And us being people of our word is extremely important because God keeps his promises. If God doesn't keep his promises, we're sunk. And so we're people of God. We follow God. So the authors see taking oaths and vows as commonplace in the practice of Christianity. We do make promises. We make vows. We take oaths. So the emphasis on the sanctity of truth and integrity in our word, our word being our bond, is the emphasis here. 
Um, in fact, section 5 here um, hints that oaths and vows are part of our religious worship. So that's why uh, when we ordain elders and deacons and pastors, it uh, t- takes place as part of a worship service. Um, we, we are warranted to do that because it's our relationship with God is part of our Christianity. It's even part of our worship. Sections 1 through 4 deal with taking oaths. Sections 5 through 7 deal with taking vows. An oath is a promise horizontally to people, to men. A vow is a promise to God. So I remember it by the V for vow, V for vertical. So here's a, a, an interesting dynamic of that. In a wedding, which is it, an oath or a vow? It's a wedding vow, right? Isn't that what we typically call it? It's a wedding vow, which is accurate and true. It is a wedding vow. But think about what I just indicated about the difference between oaths and vows. A vow is a promise to God. Vertical, V for vertical, V for vow. Wedding vow. So I'm promising to my wife, no, I'm promising to God to be faithful to my wife. I submit to you that that's extremely significant and helpful, and it ought to stay that way. Your promise is to God, not simply to your spouse. So, um, I like some of the phrases in here. For example, in um, section 2 on oaths, um, they, they cover swearing deceitfully. And you think this is just elementary students who um, they cross their fingers behind their back and therefore they can say whatever they want to you? Like this crossing of my fingers literally physically behind my back negates everything that comes out of my mouth now. I can lie straight to your face and it's okay because, ha I had my fingers crossed. That is so elementary, right? The crossing of my fingers does not undo what I'm promising. Right? <laughs> but then adults come out of children and do they set those things aside? You know? All you do is nuance it more and more and more. And swearing falsely is trying to deceive somebody. (laughs) Just say what you mean. (laughs) And taking that uh, seriously is the whole emphasis of this chapter. All right, uh, moving on to chapter 23. This is on government. I know it says civil magistrate, but we don't use those words. You think of government. Not only is God the Lord of the church, but he's also Lord over the state, the nation. Our uh, government is uh, ordained by God, instituted by God. All the nations and all the governments are set up up by God. So I guess what's important to note just um, briefly here is that this chapter does not spell out which form of government would be acceptable to the Westminster divine. So therefore... When the OPC adopted this document, you know, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the OPC was not coming out and saying this form of government is acceptable, whereas this is unacceptable. Um, Rather, what you can find if you read this chapter is that it is acceptable to have a democracy, it's acceptable to have a monarchy, that either form of government would be um, biblical or acceptable. It's just that the understanding of that government is that it's, it's set up by God. So issues such as Section 2, can we wage war? The whole giant 
you know, pacifist versus war debate that's happened through the centuries for, for Christians is addressed here that, yes, we can, is the official stance of the Westminster Confession, therefore, uh, our doctrine in the OPC. Again, section two, can Christians serve in public office? That, that may be a debate in certain Christian circles. Our stance is yes. Um, so the authors were not pacifists, and the authors would encourage Christians to serve in, in uh, a public office. And um, you see three sections, if you're reading it from the, the Trinity Hymnal or from our OPC book. There, there uh, is a fourth section that was almost entirely rewritten in the American revision of the Westminster Confession of Faith. So don't get nervous. A lot, not a lot was written. There's only two places where a little bit was, was changed. One had to do with calling the Pope the Antichrist, which is too strong of language, and the other is having to do with uh, government. So this, this was um, almost entirely rewritten in the American uh, revision. So when... when Officers in the OPC adopt the Westminster Confession of Faith, whether it's pastors, elders, or deacons, and they say we, we um, subscribe to the Confession of Faith and Catechisms of this church. What it means is the revised version taking out the, the language there in the, uh, the 23rd chapter. Then chapter 24 on marriage and divorce. Now here's the time where we take chapter 19 on law, chapter 20 on liberty, and we apply what we've covered there, the balance we established there, to a context of an issue. Here's a topic. And the topic is human relationships, the most core and important ones, the marriage between man and a woman, uh, homes are established as husbands and wives. The nature of marriage, what makes it a marriage, what dissolves it, is all uh, dealt with here. Notice section one. Let me read this to you. See if this stands out to you because it was written so long ago. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. One man and one woman. Not two men, right? not two women. So it's helpful for us even this many years later to have this ancient statement. It was not, um, to my knowledge, being proposed in the 1600s that it be codified into law for homosexual marriages. I'm sure there was homosexuality, but I don't think it was being pushed on society to the extent that they would have legal marriages. That's pretty much a modern problem, but it's been addressed here already. Section uh, 3 addresses uh, monogamy, uh, the fact that you ought to stay with that same partner I'll read section two. Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife and for the increase of mankind with legitimate issue and of the church with a holy seed and for preventing of uncleanness. So the, the purposes of marriage are, are listed out here. Help for the man and the woman. Uh, helpmate, right, to go through life together. You have a partner. Propagation of the race, like where do children come from? How do we continue as a human race? If, if there's no more children, eventually we all die out, right? That concept. And then a section, uh, or the third purpose, provision of a godly seed to uh, the church. The uh, ability to take a child from birth and raise them in a, in a Christian 
household and a Christian church provides for servants in the future for God's people. Um, section 3, um, again, about who, who may marry. Section 4, uh, to whom one may be married. And then section 5, more specifically regarding uh, divorce. And section 6, how does the marriage bond get uh, dissolved? Yeah. I'll end with Hebrews 13.4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous.